are listening to a recording of Los Altos Institute's course, Wokeness as Religion. My name is Stuart Parker, and I am the instructor. We, uh, so I had to rejig things a little bit uh, last episode to get, um, uh, to get some, uh, some stuff out of the way and get things back in a proper order. So today we're still sort of wrestling with that. Uh, and I'll be doing some of the material I said I would do last class today. What I'm going to be focusing on is uh, language, language of wokeness. Um, we often associate uh, wokeness with um, the neologisms that it's produced. Um, that's not a particularly interesting site of analysis for me uh, from a religious perspective. Certainly, we do have um, we do have uh, new words and new meanings being assigned to words. But when we dig beneath that, we actually see something far more revolutionary going on. Um, so I want to. Um, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start here. Uh, by making some suggestions about language and how it meets our needs. Um, we often focus on language as a method of communication uh, and conversation as a method of communication. And these things are certainly important, but um, it's kind of a myopic view. We're getting a very narrow view of all the things that language and conversation do for us. Um, I had, um, I mean, we all have the experience where a friend of ours has a particularly good anecdote that they retell quite frequently. Uh, now, I know not everyone enjoys that, but I would argue that most people do enjoy that. Most people do actually enjoy hearing um, other people talk without being told anything new at all. In fact, we often enjoy hearing other people talk precisely because their words are highly predictable, not because the things they're saying are novel or surprising. So, I think we have to recognize that it is very natural for human beings to see language as a multi-purpose thing. Um, I had this epiphany uh, when I was in my 20s and um, uh, the um, uh, caretaker of my building um, happened to, uh, he was befriended by my roommate and my roommate came in with this, this, um, this man and um, the guy said, well, what are you watching? I was watching TV at the time and I said, Dr. Who? And he said, Dr. Wu? And I said, no, Dr. Who? And he said, so is he a Chinese doctor? And I go, no. And then he says, Dr. Fu Manchu. And I realized that this man was actually doing what conversation really is, which is it's a game a rhythmic game that great apes play with each other where they take turns making sounds. And um, I, I became a lot, I, I, my expectations were adjusted positively, I would say by that experience to understand that, oh, we're just taking turns making sounds while we drink this beer. 
That's what we're doing. Um, and of course, when we look at other great apes, we see that uh, a lot of the time they're not bootstrapping any meaning to um, the sounds they're making. Sometimes they're using the sounds they make to communicate, but sometimes, I think particularly of gibbons, um, they're just having fun. So we don't, we shouldn't be, we should not be automatically critical of language that does not convey novel meaning. It's just one of the things we can do with language, but we should also be attentive to what language is doing. We have to recognize that it is doing a variety of things for us. And we need to focus not just on the lexical meaning of the words contained in the language, but on various other things. We need to look at its social manifestation, how it is structuring the relationships of the people around uh, who are using it. So one of the most important features of language, I would argue, is boundary maintenance. Uh, communities of people have special words that they can use to um, uh, signal something. So when I, when I was admitted, I was the, the first non-Mormon admitted to uh, Richard Bushman's uh, Joseph Smith seminar at uh, Brigham Young University in 2007. And, um, you know, this was a, this was a big academic uh, deal. Bushman was a professor emeritus of history at Columbia University. He um, is a big fish in a lot of ponds. And um, I arrived and uh, as soon as he met me, he said, you know, you're the, the first non-Mormon we've admitted to the seminar. And I go, how did you know I wasn't a Mormon? He said, every single other applicant stated in their application that they had had a testimony to apply. And that's a particular way that the word testimony is used in, um, uh, in a community um, where it has a meaning for all of us, but when it's invoked within this community, it has a different meaning that marks someone as a member. And... Uh, that's a lot of, um, and that's one of the big things, of course, that um, wokes do. They have lots of boundary maintenance language, uh, words that we might use that have different specific meanings within their religious movement. Um, and uh, we, um, and they can signal to each other who is inside or outside of the community based on um, these, uh, these specific meanings or, or neologisms or new terms that, uh, that they create. So, right, inclusion has a non-intuitive meaning to, uh, in this community, right? When people say inclusive and inclusion, um, what they typically mean is excluding people who disagree with you. Um, that's why when Karen Litsky was campaigning for school board, um, she was, um, chased, um, away from a school by people who kept telling her that she had no business being there because they were inclusive. Uh, and this, this didn't 
present any ironies uh, to those involved. It's just that they have evolved their own meaning for inclusion, and it means ideological accord. Uh, and it's a very important thing. Um, surrounding yourself with, only with people who are in ideological accord with you is, for reasons we'll visit later in this class, incredibly important, highly consequential. Wokes fundamentally feel harmed by the mere presence of people who think different thoughts than they do. Uh, and so uh, this boundary maintenance policing in the name of inclusion is, is very important. Um, so boundary maintenance is important. Recreation is important. Um, another thing that's important that I, I spoke of a bit when I was talking about um, the, uh, the Nicene Creed and the Donatist movement. Um, so the, uh, the Council of Nicaea, uh, chaired by the Emperor Constantine, um, had to, I mean, this terrible, terrible corporate retreat where you're trying to hammer out this vision statement that makes no sense at all. Um, you end up with a very strange string of words, right? Uh, let me just see if I can bring it up here. Uh, now, some people claim that they know what the Nicene uh, Creed is, um, but uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, it is, in my view, uh, as a scholar of religion, um, who does, you know, I do keep track of theology and theological positions. Um, it's, uh, it's statements about the nature of, of God. Um, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. Um, uh, that just doesn't make sense. Um, what does eternally begotten mean? Um, how can a thing that's made have made all things? Uh, and it goes on, right? It is, uh, it's a nightmarish set of words. And I wanna suggest that it's precisely because these words don't, that there's no way to derive a meaning from these words that um, they had that they enjoyed the power they did because no one can be convinced of the Nicene Creed. You can only submit to the Nicene Creed. You can only repeat the words because the words don't mean. The words are set up to nullify the meanings of the words adjacent to them so that you cannot extract sense from the Nicene Creed. And that is a very important feature in a coercive religious system like um, Byzantine Orthodox Christianity or uh, the present day woke movement. Um, 
There are ritual speech acts that you have to engage in to demonstrate your membership in the movement. Um, now, not all of them are nonsensical, um, but trans women are women, sex work is work. Um, these are classic ritual speech acts. And one of the things you may have noticed if uh, you know you spend any time in the wretched hive of scum and villainy that is Twitter, um, you uh, you will have noticed that these words are never said once anymore. So you'll notice if you go to the uh, ACLU's Twitter feed or Amnesty International's Twitter feed, um, you'll see every couple of days a post where all 280 characters are taken up and it just says trans women are women, trans women are women, trans women are women, trans women are women, trans women, on it goes. There are no becauses in these posts. There's simply a kind of talismanic repetition of a set of magic words that, that are, and the repetition of these words is understood to bring the thing they say into being. Um, I find sex work is work actually the more objectionable of the two. It's like, nobody's saying it's not work. Plantation slavery was work. Coal mining is work. Just because something's work doesn't mean it should be done. Uh, it, um, but there's this idea that we often see in these talismanic repetitions, um, there's an element of straw manning. The other function of these prayers is to falsely redescribe the views of people who disagree with you. So there are exactly zero prostitution abolitionists who say that um, prostitution isn't work. And yet, that is, of course, what, um, what the function of, say, of saying sex work is work, if there's any meaning to be extracted, it's an effort to redescribe your opposition rather than to describe your own views. You'll note that the term right to exist has been adopted by Wokes. And let's be clear where the, word, where the term right to exist came from. It came from... Um, uh, post-1967 Zionism, right? Um, once the, uh, uh, the PLO uh, developed its manifesto and, um, uh, and uh, favoring the destruction of the state of Israel and it being uh, driven into the sea, um, Zionists began saying, well, uh, Israel has a right to exist. And our opponents say we do not, Israel does not have the right to exist. Now, I disagree that rights can attach to uh, collectives. I, I guess I'm a pretty traditional liberal that way, uh, unlike some of my other views. Only individuals can have rights. Um, countries don't have rights, clubs don't have rights. 
individuals have the right to form clubs, but that doesn't mean the club then has rights, right? This is something that America spent 80 years puzzling out from the 1780s to the 1860s before finally concluding that it's impossible for both, um, you know, the state of South Carolina to have rights and for the individuals in South Carolina to have rights. Those things so obviously go into conflict with each other. So um, this right to exist, of course, um, changed after the Palestinian Liberation Organization entered into peace talks with, um, uh, with, um, with Israel um, following Anwar Sadat's recognition of the state of Israel in 1979. And uh, it became a highly problematic term. Uh, people who opposed the continued occupation of the West Bank and Gaza were soon accused of saying that you're denying Israel's right to exist. Uh, pretty soon, any significant criticism of Israeli domestic policy would be redescribed by militant Zionists in the United States and Canada as denying both the right of Israel and the right of the Jewish people to exist. And this, and this discourse was already formed. It was pre-made, it was already baked um, and imported whole cloth into the woke movement uh, to apply to other things. Uh, so you'll note that, um, uh, Right. What we are what I'm consistently accused of is saying is denying trans people's right to exist. Uh, that's routine. Um, you'll see that in pretty much any newspaper article where um, uh, and it's it's literally talking points. It's the same sentence. You can read it in hundreds and hundreds of newspaper articles where trans rights activists say, I am tired of defending my right to exist. We have a right to exist. And so no one's calling for you to all be killed, you know. Literally no one is saying you don't have a right to exist. Um, there is no faction, no matter how militant, even Matt Walsh doesn't think that uh, transgender people do not have the right to exist. Um, but because we're so used to this ritual formula, um, which had been so successfully propounded um, by apologists for the Likud party in the West, um, it slid right in. And right to exist has clearly come to mean right to not be criticized or questioned. Um, that, that, is, that has been its operational definition since about the mid-1980s. And that is, of course, a right that... Um, uh, I would contest that anyone can possess or should possess. Uh, criticism is 
crucially necessary um, to exist, in fact. Uh, so this, um, uh, so this right to exist discourse um, is a powerful one. There's another term that um, I think starts getting us further into what's going on with language. Um, uh, Chris Elston is now referred to as a stochastic terrorist. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this term, stochastic terrorism. It's all the rage in graduate schools right now. Um, what it means is that if you speak in a disparaging way about a group of people, if any one of them dies, it's your fault. Um, the idea is that if you merely uh, damage the reputation of a group and one of them is later murdered or commits suicide, it's not the person who shoots them. It's not the uh, person who, um, you know, ODs on pills who's killed themselves, you've killed them. Um, and so the idea is that uh, damaging the reputation of a group of people is literally murder. Um, and this is obviously not really because they see these causal links, but because wokes fundamentally believe that language is magical. That's why they have all these prayers. That's why they think when they repeat things, they become true. Um, and I think I probably will say a little bit about uh, neo-cabalism uh, while we're here. Um, I seem to not be able to keep to my course order these days. But basically words are magic and the words are so magical that they can hurt people who are unaware of them, who haven't heard them. Um, so this is why controlling third person pronouns is so important because right, you never use third person pronouns when you're talking to someone. That's what second person pronouns are for. Um, it's actually very hard conversationally to use a third person pronoun that applies to someone while they're in the room with you. Um, you, you, if they're in the room with you, either you typically use the person's name or you address them with a you or a thou or a tu or usted or vu, you know, that's, and, and people have long policed second person pronouns, right? People have long, uh, it's very standard in cultures, in violent honor cultures that prize things like dueling, that um, someone might be, have been beaten in the street by using two instead of usted, not using the correct level of, um, you know, formality when you're addressing your betters. Um, this, uh, uh, this is, uh, the, the third person pronouns are used when you're talking about someone and they're not there and you're recounting a story about them or something they've done. And we should be, it's very interesting that these individuals believe 
that you can own what other people think about you or who other people think you are. Uh, but that's effectively being done through a fundamental rewiring of our grammar. Uh, this, uh, the third person pronouns are about as far down um, as a movement can go into changing the linguistic software in our brains. Because this is abutting directly against linguistic hardware that you can't change. There's a bunch of language that is just neurological in character. And it's actually very damaging to people's cognition to think, okay, now, as I'm describing this event that I've witnessed, does my description resemble how the most powerful person in the room, what, what they wanted me to see? Because I can't narrate what I saw. I have to narrate what a powerful person thinks I should have seen. In this way, you're, you're, you're dislocating your own reason-making behavior um, and uh, handing it over to someone else. Now, there's a paradox. On the one hand, right, you can be killed by someone talking about you, someone you've never met talking about you to other people you've never met in another city. But at the same time, uh, as we know, um, the other, another thing we get out of the ACLU and uh, the Canadian Anti-Hate Foundation's Twitter feed is kill turfs, punch turfs, um, routine exhortations to violence. Again, often in these repeated prayer-like forms. People don't say kill turfs once, they typically say it four times, just like they say sex work is work four times. Um, and this is quite curious because, uh, but it all makes sense within woke culture because they're trying to prevent stochastic terrorism. We have to kill these people. We have to punch these people because otherwise their words will call good, cause good people to die. Uh, so it's not that this is a contradiction or hypocrisy. It's simply this understanding that words are so powerful that you increasingly need to use violence to stop dangerous words being uttered. I mentioned uh, in a previous class about how, you know, the last Los Altos conference I put on, there was an, an extended argument about whether I would be allowed to tell an anecdote uh, about an experience I had had. And ultimately the resolution to that was um, a professor from the Ontario College of Art and Design screaming directly into my mouth to drown out my words. Uh, and that's, that's quite a common tactic. You'll notice that when um, wokes do counter protests, the most important thing is to stop, not to stop the other people assembling, but to stop them hearing each other's words. And so um, there are these, all of these tactics designed to drown out speech. And you get this now with uh, when they storm university lectures. The point is to prevent speech because speech is so powerful in their view. 
again, I, I don't want to overemphasize, because I think it has been overemphasized, the role of postmodernism in this. But it is worth noting that we often hear uh, the wokes talk about social construction. And uh, Michel Foucault really pioneered uh, social constructionism, uh, this idea that uh, most of what we experience is mediated by our social experiences, is mediated by society, is intersubjective. And um, I think there's a lot to that idea. Obviously, it can be taken to the point of silliness, but um, that is true. We are social beings, and the wokes wouldn't be so much trouble if we weren't sharing a society with them, right? If, if they really weren't affecting how people believe and what they believe uh, about the physical world. But what, what's often missed is that uh, even before Foucault, right, the, our, our, our father of postmodernism is not Foucault, it's, it's Jacques Derrida. And what Derrida, Derrida was not a social constructionist, he was a linguistic constructionist. His argument uh, was that it was not society, but language that mediates our experience of the world. And uh, this Derridian idea of linguistic constructionism has had far more impact on the woke movement than Foucault's idea of social constructionism. The wokes have redefined social construction to mean personal fantasy, uh, removing the idea of both the thing, the idea that our perceptions are constructed out of real things and removing the idea that they're social. Uh, but uh, while they don't use the term linguistic construction, it's very clear that this is a movement that has exalted Derrida's idea of linguistic construction to the supernatural, that uh, this, is, uh, this is kind of a magicked up Derrida that we're dealing with. And that's why the act of renaming things is so incredibly important. Uh, because they literally believe they're affecting physical reality by renaming things. Um, I had a, a, a conversation with uh, someone who really his whole social life is in progressive circles, except when he's hanging out with me and my crew. And so it, it helps me to, to keep track of, like, it helps me as I see his perceptions of the world being revised, it's useful for me because it's not like he believes in uh, the woke movement. It's not like he identifies as part of it. It's just that he's so adjacent to it that um, I can watch these changes in perception. And one of the things that I noticed was this reimagining of the black freedom struggle. Uh, now, there, uh, there's a very interesting, I mean, the woke movement generally has to reimagine freedom struggles in order to understand itself to be a freedom struggle, right? Because real freedom struggles are not backed by the military industrial complex. They're not backed by the banks. They're not backed by the pharmaceutical industry. That's not, that's not what freedom struggles are. Um, so 
there's been a lot of effort to redescribe the gay liberation movement in ways that somehow make it the same. So another friend of mine, uh, I got into an argument with him about whether um, members of ACT UP beat up church ladies in the 80s. And it's like, no, that that didn't happen, man. The only, the, the violence was all against gay people in the 80s. There was all this gay bashing, right? They, Andrew Dice Clay and Eddie Murphy went on those tours that inspired all these um, mass gay bashing institute uh, incidents in the, uh, it's something that everyone wants to forget about Eddie Murphy. Uh, all the uh, young men he exhorted to beat the shit out of gay people. Um, so, um, you know, uh, but again, there's this reimagining. When it comes to the black freedom struggle, it's really interesting. Um, there is a, an increasingly widespread belief that the black freedom struggle is primarily about regulating language. And I'm like, no, it really wasn't on the list, guys. Like, it's not like black people enjoyed being called nigger, but nobody, nobody put on a protest over that word. That wasn't, cease it, retiring that word wasn't on MLK's list of demands. It wasn't on Malcolm X's list of demands. Um, the sense was on the part of the Black Freedom Struggle, whether you were with the Nation of Islam or the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or whether you were with the church, um, there, there was an understanding that um, uh, if we change the material conditions, the language will follow. And also, who gives a shit about the terrible things people say about me when I'm not there? Because that wasn't a real grievance. It was like, no, I'm concerned about what people do to me when I am there, not what they say about me when I'm not. And yet there's this sense that um, the big victories of the Black freedom struggle were not affirmative action and desegregation, uh, but instead politer words for Blackness. Uh, and that, I think, should tell us something quite important, again, about the centrality of language in the woke project and in the woke cosmology. So now I, I think I will give you a taste of the Kabbalism stuff, because no doubt I'll come up with other stuff when it's time to do Kabbalism. Um, so during the Middle Ages, um, there was... Uh, this encounter with Islam be in, during the Crusades that was very intellectually productive for Christians. It, uh, it introduced new ideas from elsewhere in the Islamic world. And a very important part of that was, of course, the arrival of the zero, the abandonment of Greek and Roman numerals in favor of Arabic numerals the return of place value to uh, math. And obviously this permitted all kinds of future scientific advances, working with the superior uh, number system. Um, but it also led to um, all kinds of projects that went nowhere. Uh, quantitative astrology was one. Um, there was an effort to determine, to use math to make astrology more precise. That if you could actually determine the rate of refraction of light from Venus, 
um, you could more precisely calculate the impact of Venus on someone's life or on a particular day. Uh, John Dee, the um, astrologer to uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, I, um, fascinating guy, did so many weird things. He's the guy who came up with the idea of the British, uh, the term the British Empire. He's, um, he also came up with a disastrously bad plan using astrology to uh, colonize Baffin Island, uh, where he was convinced there was gold. Um, he uh, most impressively uh, managed to get uh, some people to bring him a piece of the smoking mirror of Tezcatlipoca from the Aztec city of Tenochtitlan, um, which he attempted to use to communicate with angels. Uh, he was no good at communicating with angels. So he had to find this guy named Edward Kelly who would do it for him, who was an obvious charlatan. But even when Edward Kelly started telling him that the angels wanted Kelly to get to sleep with Dee's wife, he somehow didn't clue in. Um, so uh, anyway, John Dee, very interesting character. And he wrote a book called Propitomata Aphoristica where he proposed this mathematical model of astrology. So people were trying to quantify all kinds of things. Um, we don't really see the end of that until Jeremy Bentham at the end of the 18th century in his hedonic calculus. The original utilitarian uh, believed he could, he could mathematically quantify people's happiness and use this to calculate the greatest good for the greatest number. Uh, so we have to recognize that um, uh, all kinds of zany stuff was going on with math when we got hold of the zero. Uh, and an, a movement that showed up both in Judaism and in Christianity uh, was Kabbalism. The idea that the Bible was not, was a code and it was a mathematically structured code that if you, could if you could add up the value of the different letters, if the letters corresponded to numbers or values, you could add them up, this would reveal an additional or deeper meaning to the Bible. And it's from this really that we see this idea of the magic of words, that these words, uh, of course, there had always been incantations, there had always been word formulas, there had always been prayers, but the idea of prayer fundamentally is intercessory, right? You are making a request of God to do something for you, or you're just going, hey, God, good work, keep it up, but your, your prayer doesn't have power in the world. The only way your prayer has power in the world is it goes up to heaven and then the power comes back down out of heaven. You don't have that power. But when the Kabbalists started believing that the words in the Bible themselves had power, it began to break this system. And of course, this is when the Hermetic texts are starting to appear as well. Uh, so this idea of the magus, of uh, a practitioner of magic, uh, fit very well into this Kabbalistic idea of the power of words. Uh, this is uh, um, 
And this encounter with Islam um, uh, amplifies this because there's this Persian folklore that has been collected in Baghdad, pre-Islamic Persian folklore. And it's out of this that we get magic words, open sesame, abracadabra, that sort of thing. Uh, words that themselves have power without requiring any heavenly intercessor. At the height of Kabbalism, we see, um, or as an offshoot of Kabbalism, a, a minority within, within it, the Adam God theory emerges. Uh, the Adam God theory um, was, uh, yeah, so it starts in the Middle Ages and we're seeing the last gasp of it now. Um, the uh, heretics uh, within uh, Mormonism, the polygamists in Colorado City and Bountiful BC, believe in the Adam God theory. It was one of the doctrines propounded by Brigham Young that the church retired as soon as Brigham Young was dead. But Brigham Young did not make this doctrine. As um, John Brooke persuasively argued in the book Refiner's Fire, um, uh, many men like Young were from a group of people known as the cunning men. They were diviners, uh, fortune tellers. They were essentially, they were a working class version of the Kabbalists, uh, largely transmitting their ideas through oral tradition. And unlike the Puritans who did not migrate to the new world because of persecution, but rather as a play of political advantage, um, the cunning men were persecuted heavily in Reformation era England, and large numbers of them migrated to uh, this sort of strip of forested area from Vermont to uh, Pennsylvania uh, in the mountains. These cunning men uh, were... Um, uh, yes, this, uh, this non-elite offshoot of the Kabbalists. They didn't believe in all the math stuff, but they retained this very exciting idea that Adam was himself God. And that Adam, that the story of the creation of the world is not the seven days of creation. It's Adam in the garden. And, every, and that everything in the garden was created by Adam by him naming it. That the act of naming is identical to the act of creation. And it's in that kind, you can see how this is a very powerful woke premise that, right, People can become, a man can become a woman by being named a woman. A woman can become a man by being named a man. Uh, that's all you need to do, right? That is, uh, that's the logic of self-identification. Um, you're effectively making reality by naming reality, which is why, which is another reason beyond the stochastic terrorism that they see being misnamed, 
being called by a nondescriptive name as essentially identical to murder. Uh, that if naming something can create it, not using that name, taking that name away, unnaming it, therefore destroys it. And uh, this, uh, I would say that uh, while stochastic terrorism is often used to justify the need to silence people, that the real anxiety they're experiencing is a Kabbalistic Adam God anxiety that um, they believe that what they are has come into being because of their name and it will rise or fall by that name. Uh, you can also see that, um, I'm just gonna check to see when I have this part scheduled one moment. Uh, where, okay. Yeah, I guess we're, I guess we'll do it during American space religion, but uh, um, there's a third element to naming uh, that has to do with boundary maintenance rather than cosmology that I'll, I'll get to uh, in the space religion talk. But um, what I'll say for now is that um, this, uh, this idea of the name is um, the names, the pronouns, these things are the most powerful and the most magical. Uh, now, there's another element to language that I want to talk about, which is the ritualization of language. So um, Mark Leone, uh, polymath scholar, um, did a bunch of anthropology in 1970s Utah, which is pretty much obsolete now. Um, when I was studying um, Great Basin time consciousness during my doctorate, I was watching the time consciousness change. Uh, today, um, Mormons have very similar time conscious. Uh, I mean, Mormons outside of Utah never had this strange time consciousness. But today, Mormons inside Utah don't have this strange time consciousness Leon observed. Uh, they have a time consciousness that's much more similar to their evangelical neighbors. Uh, they organize time into a contrasting dialectic, like most rational people do. But um, in the 70s, what Leon, what Leon noticed was, I think, an important connection so that even though the thing it's explaining is no longer explained by that, um, this is a good model for understanding wokeness. What, um, what they looked at was testimony meetings in uh, LDS churches. And there is a for, and when you stand up to give testimony, um, there are certain expectations of you that are structured by the people around you. Um, and, uh, it, and what Leon was observing was a, was a bootstrap style of testimony. People would stand up to describe a problem they had in their lives. But by the end of their testimony, they would typically explain that they had already solved it. That, um, that the church had given them the tools to solve their problem. And so... It was this very strange way where people were really trying to express complaints about their neighbors or ask for help from their neighbors. 
and would then shut the shut down the very the very project they were engaged in as they continued to speak. Um, and so when people talk the same way uh, about something, and when they to some degree have strong incentives to misrepresent something about their experience, this has massive knock-on effects. Uh, and so uh, we see this in um, uh, very much in wokeness. If somebody is speaking at a meeting, if somebody is in a diversity and inclusion session, there are ways in which everything has to be framed. If you are trying to tell people well, let me give you some examples. I'll do it that way. There are strong incentives to assert your belief that you are unsafe. Uh, irrespective of your level of safety, people's willingness to consider what you have to say and uh, accommodate whatever it is you want um, is the best way to do that is to describe yourself as both being and feeling unsafe. Uh, and this immunizes you against criticism. It immunizes you against refusal. It immunizes you to an extent against people pushing back on the request you're making or disputing your description of what's going on. The more unsafe you are, uh, the, um, uh, the better off. Um, now there's a flip side to that. You, it is possible uh, sometimes for a group of wokes to reject someone's statements about their unsafety or their need to be protected or their need to, be, uh, or their need to, to convince people of an idea. So you also um, have to efface privilege. Uh, and uh, often, you know, if you're a working class uh, white person who rents their home, um, almost all of the privileges you have are not privileges. Like having friends, having a home, having a job, these are not privileges. Uh, but if... Um, you're from an identity group that the wokes consider to be dominant, um, it's very important to get out ahead of any attacks on you based on your membership in that group. The best way to immunize yourself against being told that you are asserting your white male privilege is to first say that you possess those privileges yourself. So as to... Um, diffuse or prevent a future attack. Another feature of, um, of this, uh, of, the, the, of the, the speech incentives, uh, similar to unsafety is fragility. Uh, you don't want to just be unsafe, you also want to be fragile. Um, 
this often, uh, this is one of the incentives people have of diagnosing themselves with mental illnesses during meetings. Uh, that, uh, and, um, and of course we know there is a rich, rich religious tradition of God giving his message to the fragile, uh, giving, um, uh, you know, the, the, the disabled disproportionately receive visions and visitations. It's long been a feature of uh, uh, many branches of Christianity. Uh, so, uh, so it's important to describe oneself as fragile. Self-diagnosis uh, with mental illness is effective not just in asserting your fragility. It helps you in another way, which is... You know, if you're a um, uh, English-speaking white male, um, you need to acquire some identity criteria that allow you to dominate the room better, right? It is in in of course in uh, wokeness um, rooms are dominated by domineering white men as they are in most of our society. But it's a little bit trickier there because although you have all this social power, you have to chip away at, um, uh, at your image as privileged. Um, and so you can acquire, there are certain identities very easy to acquire. You can become non-binary during a meeting. Uh, nothing has to change. Uh, maybe you'll have to dye your hair a different color the next day, but that's about it. Um, you could come out as non-binary any second, really. Given that 100% of the human population is, I don't see why that should be so hard. Uh, there is no human being who is binary. There's no human being who lives up to every gender stereotype of their gender. Um, the idea that you can take the universal human condition and re-describe it as a boutique identity is an amazing feat, though. Uh, there was that scientific journal. What was it? It was, that, well, it was the Royal Society. That's right. The Royal Society cover article was a math professor, male white math professor, making six figures coming out as non-binary. Uh, and, uh, you know, this was somehow... This somehow then meant that he could join the ranks of the oppressed and, um, you know, get back to, you know, um, yelling at black women that they're TERFs, you know, it, uh, it, it's, it's a pretty easy. So there's identity uh, appropriation. Uh, one of the reasons we're constantly finding um, that when our leaders lose social power, um, the indigenous identity they claim turns out to have been a fraud is a direct consequence of this. Because indigenous people are not significantly phenotypically different uh, than other North Americans at this point, um, indigeneity is mostly um, conveyed through costume and uh, other things uh, that, um, you know, the most common Huron hair color is red. Uh, the, uh, so there are the, there are certain types of invisible oppression that, uh, we can appropriate at our convenience. And, uh, that, um, that again is part of this set of, um, 
of social incentives. What all of those things do together though, is um, they make conversations predictable um, and they make conversations unrepresentative of what they're supposed to be describing. The more you ritualize a conversation, the more you require that any speaker make a certain class of assertion and reach a certain class of conclusion, the more your consciousness as a group begins to diverge from the consciousness of those who are not constantly engaged in ritual speech acts when they meet. Uh, the more you ritualize your speech, the more the edges and the pointy bits get shaved off the world, the more the landscape around you becomes unvarying, uh, the more everything just starts to look like everything else and sound like everything else, because you have to describe everything as everything else. Uh, you, um, that, uh, and we know what some of that description is. If you're constantly asserting that you are unsafe and fragile, you will feel unsafe and fragile all the time. You will feel like you are constantly under siege. And what that does is boundary maintenance. If you are part of a group of people that's constantly under attack, you naturally side with the other people who are under attack and venture rage at people who don't talk or describe the world this way, uh, because obviously they're the ones who are making you unsafe. Uh, so you end up with a, uh, uh, the other, of course, there are some really problematic effects of this. People constantly self-diagnosing themselves into autism is a disaster for autistic people who actually need care and support. It means that most of their care and support and uh, social license has been appropriated by a bunch of people who are just a little bit odd, um, who, you know, have decided to identify into autism because they're socially unsuccessful, uh, you know, because they're weird or boring or something. Uh, and of course, in a faddish society like ours, uh, nobody is able to operate with high levels of social intuition. Uh, the goalposts are constantly moving. So this, of course, doesn't just stretch out horizontally through space. This stretches backwards through time. Uh, the past, I mean, there are clearly two categories. There's the past, which is the world before 1989, and the present, which is the world we're living in now. Um, I got into a debate on Twitter with a, a woke and I was saying, well, look, um, I'm very familiar with ideas of gender nonconformity. That's why I, you know, uh, you know, spent uh, 20 years as an ally of transgender activists. Uh, I think that gender nonconformity is a good thing. Uh, here are, are all these other societies that have done it various different ways. And 
the person began to assert that that wasn't true. And I said, well, are you a historian of gender? No, I don't believe in history. You can't know the past through history. Well, what do you use to understand the past? Queer theory. Um, so, uh, so of course, people choose historical methodologies that make the past look as undifferentiated as their language is making the present look. Um, there was the past when people were bad, and now we're in the present when people are good, and we have to destroy um, any representations of people from the past who were good, uh, because that, that's actually more upsetting to us than people from the past being bad. Uh, it's been interesting to watch, you know, initially the statue destruction focused on General Lee and the Confederate monuments. I don't know whether you noticed, but they've switched to Lincoln now. Um, Lincoln statues are more likely to be attacked than Lee statues. And I think that tells us something quite important about this ongoing shift in the consciousness. Um, you know, because um, this movement is maybe 10 years old, uh, more like six. And we certainly haven't seen what the terminal phase of it looks like yet. But um, it's, uh, but I think that the switch from Lee to Lincoln is uh, one of those uh, signposts uh, that uh, something weird uh, or weirder is happening. And I think it's this um, filing down of the past into this undifferentiated flat space. So, uh, just to sum up then, there's a set of language reforms that we associate with wokeness. Uh, these language reforms involve increasingly ritualizing our speech uh, through repetition, through formulaic use of words. This ritualization appears to be linked to a similar kind of theology that I keep seeing again and again, where you have, um, you have a church, you just don't have God. It believes in immaterial pre-existent souls. It, uh, uh, it believes in the power of prayer. It's just that all of these things end up happening laterally through the movement. Nothing gets referred upstairs. There is no upstairs. Uh, now, we, I, I've been surprised by how, um, how reluctant people are to refer to this as what Orwell named it. This is Newspeak. Newspeak is designed to create a particular kind of consciousness, uh, a consciousness in which we have always been at war with East Asia, right? In which the party is infallible, uh, in which we welcome surveil constant surveillance of ourselves. From the, stand I, from the standpoint of what woke reforms to language do, rather than how they sound. Um, 
This is simply textbook Orwellian. It's just that George Orwell could not have guessed what the language reforms needed to actually do this would be uh, in this day and age. Uh, I'm sure that had Orwell been presented with the idea of people owning their third person pronouns, um, he, uh, uh, he would have said, oh my goodness, yes, of course it will do these things. Or this need to, uh, or this switch, the, this, this, this slow death of the word because, uh, where you don't say sex work is work because, you just say sex work is work, sex work is work, sex work is work. Uh, these things um, obviously produce this, but I think that um, what, um, uh, and I think we have to remember that the society that Orwell is attacking in 1984 um, was a, um, right, was based on a highly intelligent understanding of religious belief and its capacity to shape people's consciousness. Stalin, unlike his predecessors and successors, um, routinely um, used theological concepts, ideas that were part of people's mental furniture as in the Eastern Orthodox religion in order to achieve his political objectives. Um, he, uh, uh, and, and I, I think that um, this, the anti-theism, the attacks on Christianity by authoritarians in the past have really helped us to maintain this blind spot. When we get to a movement like wokeness, um, which is, I would say primarily assembled out of religious concepts, an amazing grab bag of religious concepts as we saw today uh, from the Council of Nicaea to the Adam God theory and on down. So next episode, um, we, uh, Sandra had requested that we do, uh, and I think this is a good idea, that we, we do an, uh, an episode on social movements that oppose uh, the woke. So I think that would be interesting uh, because of course, the social movements are so disparate that uh, it's very hard for them to work together. Uh, and they routinely debate whether they're working together on projects where they're clearly working together. Uh, and uh, it's very hard for people to come to terms with that. So if you don't mind, um, I think I'll do that next episode. Uh, but for now, uh, let's take your questions. Yeah, sure. Um, two points. One is um, Beetlejuice. It, remember in the movie, if you said it so many times, he would arrive and there would be uh, chaos. So is that an example of uh, the power and, and the repetition? And um, sorry. Yeah. sorry, go on. Uh, yeah, go on. The second point was that uh, are there um, self-help groups for uh, the wokes when they're feeling uh, weak? Like, for example, 
uh, something like AA, where they get together and hello, my name is so-and-so, I'm awoke or I've fallen away <laughs> or something. Like, how do they keep on? Because uh, I'm sure at some point they must go, oh, my goodness, uh, I'm, I'm getting weak here and I need to be amongst my own. Well, the thing is, they possess what Antonio Gramsci calls hegemony. They don't have to be the majority. They control all of our major institutions. So in this way, the wokes are much more like Eastern Orthodox Christians after the Council of Nicaea. They're only 20% of the Roman population, but they control the government, the education system, all the professional bodies, et cetera. So it's very rare for wokes to go places that they don't control. Um, And of course they, they have flags now to tell them which parts of society uh, have submitted. So, um, you know, it's, uh, so there's there's not a lot of, I would say, them leaving their bubble. Um, They may feel constantly insecure, but the flip side of that is that they're not treated by like an embattled minority. They never have the experience of being an embattled minority. You, Um, One of the things that we can also associate with this is um, this shaking out geographically of our communities. So you can, uh, so you have to go to a very conservative rural area for the downtown core of the city not to be woke controlled because all the banks will be flying the uh, pride flag the pharma pride flag. Um, And, uh, you know, so will the schools, so will, uh, you know, and the restaurants if they know what's good for them. Um, And so what that does is, um, although they feel like they're constantly under attack, they're in a world that um, reinforces their beliefs and supports those beliefs. They can even talk to friends who are not woke and out of fear, those friends will talk to them as if they are. We often are engaged in acts of impersonation in this society so that people don't notice that we're not woke. Uh, So I think that, um, uh, but as for the support groups, no, what they've done is they've turned everything into a bloody support group. You know, now your staff meeting at work is a support group. Uh, you know, now your family dinner is a support group. Um, you know, and they do have, I mean, this is one of the things uh, I associate with the grief industry. Um, the, uh, one of the things that I've seen, so one of the, so the wokes talk a lot about caring about the climate. Um uh, other than, you know, some few ki- a few kids with some soup, uh, I'm not seeing a lot of evidence for it because the wokes happily vote for any party or person who increases carbon emissions, provided they're sorry about it while they're doing it. Uh, and so a lot of climate activism is now turning into this new hideous industry called climate grief, where 
Instead, uh, uh, so uh, uh, there are climate grief courses, climate grief retreats, climate grief seminars, um, you know, these Zoom calls of, uh, you know, of, uh, of people who are um, where, the, the, where the expression of grief and fragility is an end in itself. It doesn't lead anywhere. Uh, and uh, so I think the rise of the grief industry uh, and, the, and the increasing frequency of diversity and inclusion training at one's workplace is meeting the need you're describing, this need for reinforcement, this constant reinforcement that um, people in a religious movement need anyway, but certainly people who are in a religious movement that makes them feel insecure and fragile are gonna need all the time. As for Beetlejuice, yes, um, uh, this is one of the things that um, uh, that you find in um, religious movements that think there is an enemy, um, right? Christianity initially was more like Manichaeism, more like Magianism, uh, Origen, for instance, believed that evil was an active principle in the world. Ultimately, the Christians decided evil is the mere absence of good. Uh, and uh, that it is not itself an active principle. But the, and, the, and part of the reason for that is that it's very difficult to explain. Um, if you have a system where all the magic comes from referring things up to heaven, where does Lucifer's power come from? Where does the enemy's power come from? And so, yes, you often in, in Christ, Christian texts, whether they're, you know, funny movies or whether they're serious theological works, if they try to describe the demonic or if they just try to describe um, uh, evil forces, inevitably they end up taking power away from God. Um, if it suggests that God is not the only broker of powerful magical forces, that undercuts a lot of the structure. And so that's why most texts about the demonic end up being decided to be heretical uh, because they, uh, they violate rules about the omnipotence of God. Uh, so yeah, so it's, it's, so it is, it's common for stories about demons to need to make magic words have power of their own rather than getting power from God. And so that's a staple really of literature about the demonic that, um, you end up with magic words. Uh, one of the most interesting of these ideas uh, actually came from Jewish Kabbalists in uh, the uh, 13th century. Um, it's uh, one of the reasons that um, there was this weird fight between a certain faction of Orthodox Jews and the LDS church when um, uh, the, uh, when a bunch of names of Holocaust victims um, uh, was, uh, uh, was acquired. Um, they, they believe like in order to explain the power of Christianity and who Jesus was, um, 
they uh, they had to concede the, these Jewish Kabbalists in the 13th century had to concede that um, he was some sort of very powerful magician who was able to um, actually go into um, um, go into heaven and erase his name from the book of life. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think that, um, I, yeah, so there's, there's certain just structural properties that produce that outcome when you have a monotheistic religion and then you try and uh, have these evil forces. Ah, uh, other questions or comments? Yeah, Francisco. Um, well, I just wanted to, a couple of really quick basic points here, but, you know, whenever the discussion of statues starts to happen and Lee and Lincoln and Marx, you know, all this old statues being torn down, I sort of remember a lot of what, you know, this has been happening for a long, long time since, you know, with the Romans, every new, every new emperor, you know, would have this, the faces of the last emperor remodeled. And you can see, you know, in Julius, Julius Caesar's, some of his statues, you can see how they've, they've uh, re-chiseled re um, an old face. And, and so, you know, I think this is, this thing with statues has been happening a long time, for a long time. And I guess I just wanted to identify that. Uh, it's not something new necessarily that, um, that was brought into, you know, the United States. So the Americans invented it. Um, no, no. It, um, and in fact, in the museum in Thessaloniki, um, there they uh, they show you the screw top statue heads that they actually yeah. got out ahead of this in uh, uh, the areas where the imperial cult was popular, and they actually built these giant screws so you could just screw new emperors' heads onto the statues. Uh, it's only so easy. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, no, I, I've, uh, I mean, that's certainly a common phenomenon. The question is always, what is the rhetorical goal of your iconoclasm? Iconoclasm is, has been around for as long as there have been icons. So we want to track, uh, so we can track who the targets of iconoclasm are that tells us something important about the social movement engaging in it. So, and, um, yeah, so I was kind of interested to, to hear what, what your reaction to that would be historically as a historian. But um, also the other things that sort of come to mind as I uh, as I missed last week was, you know, a lot of the times, uh, I don't know if you guys remember the Roland Joffe film, The Killing Fields, you know, with a lot of wokeism sometimes, and I don't know how accurate this is, it's, maybe it's just a half thought, but, you know, they remind me a lot of the Khmer Rouge in a lot of ways where you have, um, there were some scenes in the movie, for example, and, and this, this happened historically where children were brought in to denounce their uh, elders and saying, you know, you were a lawyer and you were a civil engineer and you don't believe in revolution and that's why you're digging for worms and, you know, this is what you deserve, et cetera, et cetera. And, and sometimes that, that, you know, it, it's a, I see similarities with the, you know, with what the Khmer Rouge were doing uh, once they shut down the country and just and just completely tried to remodel that society. And and I also think of whirling, you know, in a I guess in semi-religious context, I guess like the whirling dervishes also come to mind, 
where you know folks are just spinning with their <laughs> with their heads slightly canted to the side. Um, uh, that's also a sort of an image that I've that's sort of been playing in my mind when when thinking of of these of the silos that quite often it seems like these ideological wokes are kind of spinning in. Um, and they have to maintain that spin, of course, uh, for themselves. Um, I guess the last thing I wanted to, to say too was that there's, I wanna bring race into this a little bit. Mm. Um, and I think, can we agree that wokeism emerged from the um from black american culture i mean the i mean the when term first, certainly did mm -hmm. it's it's completely of course it's it's changed and it's been appropriated um but i just wanted to make sure that i could uh but there was some some reasonable um foundation for for saying that 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 the term wokeism originated within the black uh, cultural movement in the United States, and that there is a segment of woke criticism that is uh, white nationalists. Uh, oh yeah. Like, so I, 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 and I mean, while while we're trying to put the parentheses on what wokeism is, um, I th I thought it was kind of important to acknowledge sort of the origin of that of that word, because uh, words are important. Um, so, yeah, I mean, th those are the, those are the couple of things I just wanted to throw so, on the table. So, uh, to respond, I'm going to try, I, I'm trying to keep all three in my head. Uh, first part, um, uh, Khmer Rouge, absolutely, uh, cultural revolution, even closer to the mark, I would say. Um, the cultural revolution, uh, is much more, right, uh, in China, uh, the Red Guard, um, the struggle sessions, all that sort of stuff. Uh, yes, Pol Pot definitely uh, was concurrently using these parts of Maoism in, uh, in Cambodia. But um, the denunciations, the struggle sessions, uh, the youth movements um, that are being sponsored by one part of the establishment that has declared war on another part of the establishment. Right, because that, that's effectively what's going on. This is, in some ways, uh, the Russian Revolution in slow motion. The commissar class has declared war on the owner class, and it has developed this ideology to prosecute that war uh, using um, uh, youth culture and uh, these attacks on freedom of speech and assembly. Uh, so I, I think that that definitely the um, the Cambodia uh, Cambodia is uh, is good. I think that one of the things that um, we see in both um, uh, we see uh, with really the beginning um, when Aaron Ekman first noticed this move on the part of employers uh, in high level labor negotiations to bring in these DEI policies and to bring in much more far reaching policies to allow employees to make uh, claims of systemic discrimination. But the policies were 
like the unions, he said, were asleep at the switch. The policies were never directed upwards. They were directed laterally. That to, it used to be 20 years ago that most of a union's business was dealing with complaints by workers about their bosses. Today, most of a union's business is dealing with complaints about by workers about other workers, by their peers. And that lateralization of violence that uh, is something, again, we associate with uh, particularly the Khmer Rouge, right? Uh, one of the most effective things, you know, if you want to make Pol Pot happy today, find your neighbor's glasses and break them. Uh, that uh, that's that was um, that that was viewed as a as a revolutionary act, and so one of the things about wokeness is all kinds of acts that would normally seem like petty resentment, personal attacks. Um, these things have been redescribed as politics to replace politics. Uh, what people now understand to be politics is really all, all these post-political activities of finding people you think have done something bad and hurting them as individuals. That's the very antithesis of politics, but it's, it, it's effectively replaced politics. And now people think that's what politics is. Now, to the last point about race and woke discourse. So yes, the term woke, um, it, uh, it comes out of uh, the black church's memory of the second great awakening because the second great awakening is when uh, plantation slaves uh, converted en masse to Christianity. Uh, the Methodist circuit riders went into the South and the plantations were for the most part, um, people practiced African religions on the plantations uh, if they practiced religion at all. There were a few Muslims, but mostly it was, you know, traditional Nigerian or Cameroon or Congolese religions. And the planters became convinced that the slaves would become less unruly. They would be easier to control if they were to become Christian. So they permitted the circuit riders onto the plantations and the results were not what they wanted. Uh, the, the messages of the Bible, the tools of literacy that the Bible provided, these stories in the Bible were appropriated and became really the plot structure of the black freedom struggle up to the present day. This belief that, um, uh, that, uh, that they're recapitulating um, the Jewish escape from slavery in Egypt is central to uh, black identity and is in large measure um, still part of most black Islam as well now. That black Islam in America changed too because of this different way of thinking about who black people were. Uh, so the term woke been in circulation for a long time. Uh, and it was used by an individual during 
uh, the uh, George Floyd protests and caught on like wildfire. Uh, it uh, and spread very rapidly. Before the term woke came along, I referred to this social movement as identitarianism. Uh, I changed my lexicon because the popular lexicon changed. Uh, that um, now, white nationalists are generally blind to this because white nationalists don't particularly like the idea that black Americans are the most Christian Americans. Um, they will tend to focus on atheism, unemployment, communism. Those are the sorts of accusations they throw at the black community, not an excess of religiosity. And so um, I think also the problem is that um, we massively mislabeled a bunch of social movements as white nationalist. And I, I've been a culprit in doing that. Um, there definitely were white nationalists in the Trump movement. Um, but white nationalism was not, in my view, the dominant theory of that movement. Certainly, there were certain white nationalist discourse. One of the things that, first of all, the Trump movement was, and the, Bolsonaro, Trump, Duterte, Modi, they're all interested in moving the color line down. So they're interested in redefining whiteness so that it includes more people. So, right, if you're an American progressive, uh, Nikki Haley is South Asian. If you were an American conservative, Nikki Haley is white uh, because high caste Hindus are white uh, effectively. And that's of course how high caste Hindus understand themselves. Similarly, um, people who come from other white supremacist societies with a lower color line, uh, like Southern Brazil and Argentina, right? Uh, it's hard to find a more white supremacist city than Sao Paulo. Um, but it's quite shocking to them that because of slightly darker skin, but mainly because of their accent and national origin, when these white people arrive in America, their credentials are not accepted as, uh, they're not accepted as whites by the people, the other whites. Uh, watch this happen to a, um, uh, a woman who was uh, the uh, wife of a uh, wealthy uh, mining executive who came to Vancouver and went through an absolute identity crisis because she was part of Brazilian high society as a white woman and arrived here and, and discovered she wasn't white. Uh, so, um, so one of the features, so what we, what we tend to see in wokeness is the opposite. It's an attempt to raise the color line, to make the club of white people as small as possible. And it's also, of course, a white supremacist ideology because it argues that math is white, being on time is white, the enlightenment is white. Um, so we have, right, um, I would say Bannonite nationalism is, a is not really white nationalism, it's a variant. And I would also say that, um, but if you put on one of those red hats, it really doesn't matter what color you are. Um, those, uh, those MAGA hats, you know, they're better than Kevlar for stopping police bullets. Uh, you're, you, so there's a universalism 
to these people who are called white nationalists that I think is miss, uh, is is missing when people look at uh, those movements. Um, and there is this belief that 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 wokeness is somehow anti-racist. Um, it is an ideology I would refer to more as neo-Ottoman. It's about maximizing the number of racial categories, the number of gender categories, the number, the number of immaterial categories that can apply to a person, and then organizing those the, the contents of those categories into hierarchies. Um, that uh, And so there's a lot of sort of white supremacist humble bragging uh, that we confuse with anti-white racism on the part of uh, the woke movement. Now, the other thing is that um, we assumed that the Trump movement and uh, movements like Maxime Bernier's would be static, that the properties we could assign to them seven years ago would remain true. Well, given the total rewriting of progressive as an identity and a total uh, a change of who is progressive, how much money they're likely to make, what they're likely to think about things, what they're likely to believe in. Well, those movements have also undergone continuing change because of the churn in our society. And I really noticed this um, uh, because I, I uh, went to, um, a uh, Maxime Bernier talk on Saturday. And not only was the party unrecognizable, Bernier himself was unrecognizable. No mention of multiculturalism, no mention of supply management, no mention of free markets, because Bernier's constituency, of course, there's a mutuality in how these things shape each other. And so if you have a constituency that's mostly composed of the underclass and it's disproportionately non-white, then that ends up trickling upwards in your movement, right? This is how the Republicans have totally screwed themselves with voter suppression in the US. They came up with all these methods to stop poor people from voting, but now their members are poorer than the Democrats and they lose low turnout elections because of their own voter suppression laws. Uh, so it's, um, so there is all this churn. And I think that um, you'll note a lot fewer Sons of Odin than seven years ago, a lot fewer Proud Boys, a lot uh, neo-Nazi movements are really out of gas right now because the populist right has ended up filling up with brown people and taking on anti-racist opinions. Uh, and uh, so, and I'll tell you, I, I would have had no idea how much uh, the Bernier stump speech uh, had changed in four years had I not witnessed it myself, because it's not merely that that stuff is suppressed in the media. It's that for some reason, it doesn't occur to us to look. It doesn't occur to us to check in on how large social movements other than those adjacent to us are evolving. And uh, yeah, I think, I mean, the, uh, 
I think the rise of DeSantis is uh, is further evidence of that as well, that um, DeSantis is competing well against Trump um, in large measure because um, he polls more non-white people. Uh, and the Republicans aren't just getting poorer, they're getting less white. Uh, other stuff. Yeah, Cheryl. Um there's this uh, guy, well, I don't even know anymore. Um, Drew Barrymore was... Uh, oh, the Dylan Mulvaney thing. Yeah. And uh, the, the latest video, like, I don't know the, the sequencing of this video of him uh, as a six-year-old girl. Yeah. And I think um, anybody that has seen it, and even if they're not aware of what's going on in, in Wokeland or whatever, they would be able to understand what was going on in, on that video in that here is a man being like a, a six-year-old girl and who would the audience be for? It would be for pedophiles and or attracting young children. Like I could see a little, little kid, oh, who's that? And um, engaging this person. And so is, is that a line he, he, she crossed at this point? And is there 15 minutes almost up or like Absolutely where does he go not. after that? Absolutely not. This guy, right. You know, he got an audience with the leader of the free world uh, last fall. And um, right. And this was, and that was the same week he did a video showing off a TikTok video, showing off his ability to show off his erection in a miniskirt. Um. And what was the effect? I would argue it was similar to the effect of some of the shock and awe tactics that Donald Trump used. Um, Trump was very, Trump would do things that you would think would produce widespread disgust. And instead they produced higher levels of compliance. The decision to feel up his daughter on live TV in front of 17 million viewers produced a poll bump. Donald Trump looking over his wife's shoulder at her supposedly secret ballot paper drove votes to him. And that's because of reaction formation. When we get signs that we are unsafe, what we do often instinctively is placate the person who seems dangerous uh, and then deny to ourselves that the person is dangerous. And we've developed this habit over thousands of years of domestic abuse, right? Abuse of children, abuse of women in domestic relationships. Um, where there's something right near us that has all this power over us and it's really scary. And what we have to do is convince ourselves that this isn't scary. I was reminded of a, a line from Trailer Park Boys. Oh yes, Ricky, this is fine. This is just fine. This is not fucked up. And so I refer to this phenomenon, um, you know, when I was talking about uh, Terry Glavin's observations about Bashar al-Assad's army, that the vanguard of the army are not your dispensable infantry, they're not your best soldiers, 
they're the people who have undergone the most extreme forms of body modification because it produces a shock and awe effect. It demoralizes the other side. Uh, the march of the grotesques has been a staple of Middle Eastern warfare for 3000 years. And that's why the last, right, People were attacking all this wokeness and whatever. It looked as though the Democrats were, there was going to be this big red wave that was going to crash across America. And, right, they tried bringing out Stephen Colbert and uh, John Stewart and John Oliver to sell us pediatric gender transition. It didn't work. It didn't move the needle. What moved the needle was inviting Dylan Mulvaney to the White House the week before the election. Because uh, the message was, we're the scary ones now. We're the perverts. We're the predators. And we can act with impunity. And I think it drove, I think those, uh, those of us who are survivors of um, abuse uh, in a marriage or in a family, that programming is so deep, we don't even, we, we don't, we don't notice it. We don't see how fear really can drive uh, people to vote in favor of the thing they fear. So I think Mulvaney will continue to escalate. I don't know where, I mean, I, I don't know where it goes now. Uh, but, uh, and, and people just are, of course, saying just the most ridiculous things in defense of all this. Like, nobody's really trying to make sense. Um, it's just that they, uh, uh, that uh, the reaction formation is overwhelming. And I put this together yesterday. I think my big insight on the climate file is, because I kept thinking, like, why is it that when I work on this gender critical stuff, nobody who works on climate is with me other than the folks from Deep Green Resistance. Uh, and why is it that when I work on climate, um, there's no overlap going the other way except for a tiny handful of people. And I think the, the other, what I realized is when, um, When we had the height of um, Honey Boo Boo and the child beauty pageants and whatever, uh, when that was happening, that was because people on the political right largely believed that the climate was changing, that we were changing it, but that the damage we were doing was somehow worth it or justifiable. And what that really meant was hurting children is okay. And when you normalize hurting children, then that shows up all over. It's like, it's just no big deal. These kids can handle this. Um, is that, that sends you to very bad places very fast. So I now believe that climate denial inoculates you against, uh, against falling for Dylan Mulvaney because climate denialists are not experiencing high levels of reaction formation. They're, or they experience reaction formation, but their reaction formation is protecting them from needing to believe that it is okay to hurt kids. And, 
as we've moved from climate activism to climate grief, I think a thing that is naturally following that is Drag Queen Story Hour, because we have to tell ourselves it's okay to not safeguard children. Uh, so it, um, so I think that, I mean, I almost, I mean, I never thought I'd say this, but yeah, to get out of, I mean, we have this paradox, right? There are very few people who can hold these beliefs concurrently that, um, that they think they're participating in some kind of omnicide that the governments they're voting for are participating in this omnicide that is going to primarily damage our kids. It logically follows that in order to emotionally uh, process that, they need drag queen story hour. They need pediatric gender medicine. Uh, it, um, it, it's, it normalizes and universalizes the dereliction of duty to children. So it, uh, yeah, anyway, I, this, this occurred to me yesterday because I just, I was trying to look, why are these beliefs in these packages? Why can, why is it that when people start getting concerned about this, they're likely to become climate denialists? People who believed in climate change for decades, they become gender critical and they stop believing in anthropogenic climate change. And so leaving aside the veracity of any of the beliefs, there, whether one believes in anthropogenic climate change or not, it's very clear that that belief strongly conditions your other beliefs in society. So anything else, folks? Okay. Uh, Christine, you look like you're about to say something. Yeah, I was just thinking along those lines. I was thinking about, well, I was just reading an article today on the really low birth rate in South Korea. I'm just thinking generally along the terms of low birth rate, hope, what it is when you have lots of children. I don't know. I'm just, I hadn't really formulated my thought, but because I would say, I don't know. I, I think I believe in climate change and I also am gender critical. So I'm trying to think, trying to figure that all out in my head. Well, I think that's largely, if there's anywhere people like us are grouping up, it's here. Uh, that whatever the tiny number of people in this country is who believe in both things concurrently. But I will tell you that what makes me an exception in this tiny group of people who believe in both things is that I don't have kids. The other people I noticed who the first people to go gender critical uh, in, the, in the climate movement were uh, people like Art Vandenberg, who, um, uh, who is an incredibly devoted father. And uh, so I think that, um, yeah, I think that that is in the package. And, you know, I... Yeah, I, I think that um, we, I guess the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll say on the subject is um, I didn't even used to really, I didn't used to think Western civilization had as much to offer as I did until I taught um, 
a lot of first generation immigrants who had come to take a course at BCIT specifically. And so I got to hear other people's reviews of what the West meant to them. And it's then that I started coming up with the theory. I don't, th I would say, so most people say Western civilization starts with the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, it starts with the Greeks. I, I'm much more inclined to say it starts with the Punic Wars. It starts with the war between Rome and Carthage, because although the Greeks hated the Phoenicians for their practices of child sacrifice, um, they uh, didn't really do anything about it. Whereas in order to get its men to go and die in North Africa by the thousands, Rome ran a modern war propaganda campaign about the need to save other people's children. This idea, you go from the Greeks going, I wouldn't treat my kid that way. Although, you know, they're happy to send them to schools where they knew they'd be molested. Um, I wouldn't treat my kid that way is different from we shouldn't allow people to treat their kids that way. And I do think, even though it was in the service of a commerce-based war, I do think that that act of war propaganda created something good in the consciousness of the West. And I really see that that, when, you know, nuts like Matt Walsh go on about destroying Western civilization, that Dylan Mulvaney is destroying Western civilization, I get the point a little bit that caring about other people's things, being a busybody and caring about people, her, other strangers hurting their kids is a distinctively, um, is, it, it's, it's distinctive. Um, most civilizations um, are much more tolerant of cultures that have different child raising practices than the West has traditionally been. And there are good reasons to be tolerant of other cultures' child-raising practices. It keeps you from going to war. It keeps you from destroying other cultures with valuable things to say. Uh, I'm not, uh, but I, I think that, um, but I think that this concern about other people's children, a duty of care to other to the children of strangers is um, something important about our society that's now being relitigated. And closely connected to that, or somewhat connected to that, is, is the whole idea of the hope of the future. I mean, I know that sounds yeah. so obvious and trite, but, it, but it's huge. It's huge how it's, how it's influencing all of us. I was talking to my son the other day, actually telling him about how you defined patriarchy. Oh, nice. And then he, um, he just made the observation that just the percentage of people of younger people in his demographic and stuff who who aren't married with children or don't have children in their lives it, it just it, it does create different ways of looking at the world oh yeah and, and i and think not that pointing out individual a, or anything just the overall even at a population level like one yeah. of the reasons utah is such a nice place is because there are children everywhere and the infrastructure is built for families. Um, so you have a different noise tolerance, right? You put up with more noise in a lot of settings. Um, 
But you can see that even childless people are profoundly affected and their behavior is conditioned simply by the proximity to all these children. So yeah, when the children disappear, something goes very wrong with us. I mean, a lot of the success of feminism came out of the discovery of what happens when women disappear, when they looked at society during the California gold rush. You had a 97% male society, and it became impossible to sustain the belief that masculinity was at the center of civilization. That civilization, you know, as I, as I, as I would sometimes uh, say, I, I make an apocryphal claim about the California gold rush that no one can really disprove. It's like, no, men were, men were starving to death while masturbating. Like, this is, this is what it was like. It, uh, they, so, yeah, I do think that hope for the future is absolutely part of this. And of course, thinking about the climate crisis, it eats away at your hope for the future in multiple ways. So yeah, I think it, it's a lot easier to be okay with people hurting children when children are like mascots you see on TV and not people who are running through your home every week. And um, the, uh, the, the last, yeah, there was something else I was gonna say on that, um, on that hope front, but uh, yeah, there's, um, yeah, and when you move into these grief movements, of course, they are about the nullification of hope. Uh, they're backward looking, not forward looking. They're focused on the things that we have lost and are losing, uh, rather than offering some kind of hopeful message. Um, the, yeah, anyway, there's, anyway I'll, I'll figure it out later, but uh, we're, uh, I guess we, we've hit our two hour mark pretty much and um, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see you on Wednesday. Okay, bye everybody. Right. Thank you. Thank you.